Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Ladies and gentlemen, Christmas is coming up. Oh my goodness. Have you finished your shopping, Ben? I have not. As a matter of fact, I hadn't even started it because I'm a big old dummy. But most of you out there are pretty smart and you've gotten everything you need except for one thing, an ugly Christmas sweater t-shirt. Yeah. And oh my goodness. You guys are picking them up at such a fast rate. I'm having trouble keeping up because I was going to, you know, try to be like, this person is in the lead and yada, yada, yada. Turns out I did find out that Theodore Roosevelt, he is the number one most popular t-shirt going right now. That just figures. That guy, always in the front, always in the limelight. But hey, we think he's pretty cool. You know, did you know he rode a moose? Really? I thought it was a bull. I heard it was a moose somewhere. Mm, Bull. Who who knows? Uh, Anyway, if you want to say moose. Oh, moose. That's okay. If you want to get an ugly Christmas sweater with your favorite historical figure, probably even a president on it, head on over to electioncollege.com slash Christmas, and you can pick one up. Most of them are even through Amazon, and you can get free prime shipping. Have it in two days. Keep it for yourself. Give it to one of your friends or family members. Make sure they know about your love for history and uh, you want to show it off to. Man, you're going to look awesome. A conversation with the author of President McKinley, Architect of the American Century. Hey, Ben, I really enjoyed talking to Robert W. Mary this afternoon because, oh my goodness, this guy knows more about President McKinley than, well, maybe some members of the McKinley clan. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. He's a super interesting guy. And I mean, not only President McKinley, but also Robert Mary. And uh, we really are excited for you all to check this out. We hope to have some more opportunities like this in the future. Uh, But we were uh, fortunate enough to get some review copies and then final copies of this book, President McKinley, Architect of the American Century. And we'd love for you to check it out. If you like what you hear and you want to hear more about President McKinley, head on over to electioncollege.com slash McKinley. That link is in the show notes and uh, you'll be able to check out some more. But in the meantime, we hope you enjoy this interview. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a special guest on Election College this episode. We are talking to Robert W. Mary, who is a an author. He previously wrote A Country of Vast Designs. Uh, that was a biography about James K. Polk, and he has just released, or Simon & Schuster has just released a new book called President McKinley, Architect of the American Century. Welcome, Robert, to the podcast. Thanks, Alex. It's nice being with you. Oh, it's a real treat for us. Obviously, this is right up our alley, so we're excited to talk with you. Well, thank you. Now, something that, and just in case our audience or, or you may not realize, is McKinley lived a lot of his life right in between where Ben and I live. Ben lives in Butler, Pennsylvania. I live in the Cincinnati area. So we are constantly going through William McKinley territory. But to be quite frank, he gets overshadowed by, well, 
Roosevelt. But <laughs> <laughs> but what really intrigued me first about this book was your the subtitle here, Architect of the American Century, because here I lived the first portion of my life in the 20th century, and I didn't know a lot about President McKinley. Tell tell us just a little bit about what intrigued you about William McKinley and why is he the architect of the American century? Well, I appreciate you bringing up that subtitle because um, when I came up with it and my editor at Simon & Schuster, Alice Mayhew, um, kind of bought into it, it was very audacious because McKinley is not viewed as a consequential or a very truly significant or shall we say great or near great president. Uh, And yet at the same time, uh, very, very significant and consequential events took place during his presidency. So that's kind of the mystery. How is it that this president doesn't really get credit for all the events that took place during his own presidency? So I got into the story and I concluded that he knew exactly what he was doing. And a lot of those things happened because they were precisely what he wanted to have happen. Um, and if you look at it carefully, he he made American empire. He brought in Hawaii. He beat Spain in the Spanish-American War. He created the special relationship with Britain. Uh, his Secretary of State, John Hay, uh, opened up China with the open door, uh, which was a diplomatic coup of the first order. All those things happened, and he was president for one term in about six months. Uh, and so, yes, I think he was the architect of the American century. It's one more thing I'll say, and that is, and we can talk about this if you want to pursue it, but um, many historians who have studied him carefully, and there aren't that many actually, but those who have, um, have said that he's something like the first modern president who restored power to the executive branch after the Civil War period and the post-Civil War period in which uh, Congress really dominated the government. Now that's fascinating to me, especially where you had, um, well, after, well, Lincoln was a transformational figure and president in that the role of the federal government certainly uh, played a bigger role in people's lives. But uh, then you had a succession of, you know, several Republicans, um, mostly Republicans. And then McKinley comes in. I'm curious about this because uh, Ben and I have been talking a lot uh, in recent days about the presidency leading up to Lincoln and that whole concept of manifest destiny. And here the Republican McKinley finishes off manifest destiny in a way, or is that an accurate statement? Well, I think it's totally accurate. I mean, I think that one of the reasons that I did James Polk is because he was the great expansionist pre-Civil War expansionist president. Now it's true that his expansionism, and he brought in huge swaths, Texas, California, the the Oregon territory, which is Washington, Oregon, um, Idaho and parts of uh, Montana, parts of Wyoming, uh, and then all of the Southwest. Uh, all that he brought in, and he basically consolidated the American position on the midsection of the North American continent. Um, now, what he did also, however, was he hastened the Civil War because it exacerbated the whole slavery question as it had to be applied to the question of whether these new territories were going to be slave or free. So then we had the Civil War. Uh, then we had the struggle to sort of stitch the country back together after the Civil War in kind of two phases, Reconstruction and the post-Reconstruction, um, and the emergence of industrialization. So the country was just not in a position to even think about expansionism at all. 
But as soon as it was, and that was in the 1890s, uh, that expansionist zeal and that uh, impulse uh, reasserted itself and America busted out of the North American continent into the world. And, and uh, that was mostly McKinley. He's the one who positioned us for uh, the 20th century greatness that sort of came to fruition with Franklin Roosevelt and the Second World War. Robert, I'm really curious. Um, obviously, you know, you're, you're a lover of history and you've, you've had some past historical works as well. But what, uh, when did you know that, hey, I want to write a book, I want to do the biography about uh, McKinley? Uh, because he's obviously, as we've discussed, not someone that uh, everybody immediately thinks of. When, if you ask people to name all, you know, all the presidents, he might be one of the ones people struggle to get their name. So where did your love for the, the topic of McKinley come from? And, and when was it you knew that, hey, this is the next project I got to take on? I can't take credit for the idea. It's a kind of a funny story, actually, for people who are interested in how these literary projects kind of emerge. I had developed a very good relationship with Simon Schuster and my editor, Alice Mayhew. I love the organization. I love Alice. Um, and I had done three books for Alice, including um, the uh, Polk book, a previous book about American foreign policy. Uh, and then I did a book on the um, American presidency, how it works, how presidents succeed and fail, and how we assess them in history and how their assessment may change. Um, well, the, that book on the presidency was actually part of a two-book contract. And the other book that I had had a contract with Simon Schuster was a book about the 1850s, what we were just talking about in terms of the run-up to the Civil War. Uh, and it's a fat period that fascinates me. Um, but... Uh, Alice's boss, Jonathan Karp at Simon & Schuster, um, read the book on American presidency, and they were very pleased with the Polk book, both in terms of how it came out and also how it did uh, in sales. And so he went to Alice and said, you know, I'm thinking maybe we should keep Bob on presidents for, for now. He's, he's uh, <laughs> you know, he's sort of in presidents, and maybe we should keep him there. That may be where his identity lies. And so Alice came to me and said, how would you feel about uh, taking on um, another president? And Jonathan thinks, based on my book on the presidency, that he's an intriguing guy. Well, I knew a little bit about McKinley, and I knew a little bit about the time. But I have to say, in terms of writing a book, I was pretty ignorant. Um, but if that's the book they wanted, uh, and I, wanted, I was about ready to retire and uh, move out to the Northwest. I still spend a lot of time in Washington, but... I have a place now. My primary residence is on Puget Sound. And so I said, well, if that's the book you guys want, I'll look into it. And I did. And I said, this is intriguing. So I can't take credit for the idea, but I got into it very fast. Very cool. Yeah, that's interesting to hear. I always like to hear about the, uh, you know, the publishing process and, and then not only that, but also your process working through that. Was, was there much, um, you know, did you to write the book, to, to get into McKinley's head, essentially, did you have to do much traveling? Were you mostly able to, to look at other literary works uh, and original documents, or was it a lot of, um, you know, a lot of going places and seeing things firsthand? Uh, which, which aspect, which perspective did you take on that? Uh, there were two places I had to go to and spend a fair amount of time. One was the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., and I spent hours and hours and hours there because McKinley's papers are there. But not only McKinley's papers, but many people who surrounded McKinley 
had papers who were there, including John Hay, his Secretary of State and Ambassador to Britain, and um, Mark Hanna, the industrialist who was his very, very close friend and supporter, uh, and various other diplomatic uh, positions uh, and other people who surrounded uh, McKinley. So I spent a lot of time going through those papers. And then I had to go out to Canton, Ohio, uh, where uh, there's a McKinley Library and Museum, and there were some further papers that I was able to get there, as well as some photographs and things of that nature. Um, and the wonderful thing about this kind of research now, I do a lot of newspaper research because I get a sense of the time. I get a sense of the rhythms of how events are unfolding and how politics is roiling the country. Um, and I could do that from my my study uh, on the shores of Puget Sound because you know, now you can get it all online. So that was very helpful. And I spent uh, a lot of time going through, I pretty much read the Washington Post and the New York Times as if I was reading a paper day to day. I would, uh, you know, I didn't read every article, but I would find the ones that were pertinent and then I would pull them out and then I would go over them over and over again until I would get the sense of how these events unfolded. And then I would sort of weave in the McKinley stuff into those events or sometimes vice versa, weaving in the events and the newspaper accounts into the narrative about this man. I absolutely love how the book begins, uh, especially being from, I, I don't live in Ohio, but I can see Ohio from my house oh. and, <laughs> and um, how, how this story of um, uh, statehood and the population who made Ohio their home and how uh, by the time the McKinleys came and by the time William becomes the president of the United States, oh my goodness, how much had changed out West here. And what was there anything that you had? To, how did you uncover some of this? I, I don't want to give away the first couple of pages, but uh, just everything from where the McKinley family came from and the research that went in behind that. Was that something that you can just find online or is that part of his story there in Canton or in the library of Congress? Yeah. Um, a lot of it, uh, there had been some early biographies of McKinley, including biographies written shortly after his death and including some, a couple of that were written, uh, well, when he was running for president the first time. So while he was still alive, um, and so the early um, years and the early formative periods and experiences uh, had been picked over by these early biographies, and so they were very, very helpful. But there was also some papers and documents at, in Canton and at the Library of Congress that shed some light on that as well. Um, but you see, when someone is emerging and then biographers uh, sort of begin to surround that person, one of the most important things that they want to know is like, how'd you, how'd you get there here where you are right now? How did you emerge? What was your background like? What were your parents like? So all that had been picked over, but it hadn't been looked at for years and years. You know, the, this, my book on McKinley is the first major book for a popular audience written on this man since 1959. Wow. That was a wonderful wow. book by Margaret Leach in the days of McKinley. But that's a long time for a president, especially one who presided over so much significant change, took the country into a war, made the country an empire. That's a long time for the country to basically ignore this man. Mm -hmm. Definitely. 
And on top of that being a civil war hero, <laughs> I, I, that is, that is a story that I had not, I, I just don't associate the civil war with William McKinley. He was the last president who had served in the civil war. There were five. Um, and he was the last of them. Uh, and yes, he was a young 18 year old private when he got into the military at the beginning of the Civil War, and he ended the military as a 22-year-old major. That's a pretty meteoric rise, even in, by Civil War standards, yeah. although there were a lot of people who rose up in that way. Um, but his promotions, many of them came as a result of battlefield heroics, and he was sort of uh, courageous and, um, as uh, Kipling said, didn't seem to know the use of fear. Uh, he uh, one, one story that I'll try to keep kind of short, but at Antietam, he had, he had risen up as quartermaster sergeant because his, his commanding officer, Rutherford B. Hayes, later president, of course, uh, saw great organizational skill. So his job was to provide for the troops. So in the great battle of Antietam, he was two miles behind the lines, but he heard about a unit that had been pinned down and had not been able to um, get any food, had no breakfast, had no lunch, had run out of water. And they were, you know, sort of an extremist. And um, so McKinley said he was going to load up a wagon and take it to him. And his commanding officer says, you can't do that. There's no way you get through the, you have to go through the battlefield. Well, he did it. He had the back of his wagon shot off, but he got a bunch of uh, provisions to these troops. And, and it was totally voluntary. He didn't have to do it. Uh, so that, that made him a, a commissioned officer. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. In uh, in your research and in your writing, and uh, we don't want to give too much away because we want people to check out the book for themselves. But uh, was there anything that you uncovered that you were you know just kind of very surprised by? Uh, didn't expect to, to find out about William McKinley. Well, I discovered what I called in the book the mystery of William McKinley because he was a very affable fellow. He was not a powerful man uh, in terms of his personality. Uh, he was not a visionary. He didn't have a lot of, he wasn't, there was no flamboyance to him. Um, and yet he accomplished a lot. And so the question was, how did he do it? I have to say that after I got into this project, he was driving me crazy for a period of time because <laughs> I couldn't really get a handle on him. And I couldn't see, since he operated sort of from the shadows and he, he had a way of making people do what he wanted them to do while they thought it was their idea. They didn't know he, they were being manipulated. Until I understood that element of McKinley, how he uh, managed people indirectly and stealthily uh, and often with a great deal of, uh, of um, savvy, uh, until I understood that, I couldn't really draw the connection between these events and him. But as soon as I did, then it all sort of came into focus and I could see and that really informed the narrative. It made the narrative, it gave the narrative dry uh, because I could see what he was doing 
that was moving these events and creating these situations. And uh, as I say, he wasn't a man of vision, but he knew how to manage events and people and get them moving in the direction he wanted them to go. It's really interesting as we as we work through our podcast, you know, we have all these different studies that we do on people. And, and I'm not just talking about presidents, but also, you know, first ladies and other people who surrounded them during that time period, mm-hmm. how you find out that, you know, the some of the decisions that they made and the, the ways they acted while they were in office, how it makes perfect sense. Uh, you know, some of the things we may think are strange when you look at their life before uh, and so how their life before influenced their time in office. And I think that, you know, what you're saying that really does make a lot of sense with McKinley, just, you know, the his upbringing and the way he, he moved forward throughout his life from that point. You talk about the military and uh, it just kind of goes to show how he would then in the future come to, uh, you know, the presidency and, and how he would govern in that way. Yeah, absolutely. One common thread that I see in um, William McKinley's adult life is the love that he has for Ida Saxon. Uh, What influence, and for those of you who uh, haven't listened to our episodes about the uh, presidential race and and then really the assassination uh, of McKinley and what um, the, the comments that he said about his wife and he was very protective of her. Uh, what role did Ida Saxon and eventually Ida Saxon McKinley have on William's political career? Was she a, an advocate or was she somebody who a, at first was just behind the scenes? What, what was her role? She was very much an advocate, and she was very much a. Uh, she she thought from a very young age, I think from their honeymoon, that he was going to be president of the United States, and they must have, based on what I know about that, they must have talked about his ambitions, um, somewhat uh, during their honeymoon. Um, but this is a very poignant and sad, in many ways, story. Uh, Ida Saxton was a uh, scintillating woman, young woman. Uh, she was a daughter of the richest guy in Ken. He owned the newspaper. He had a bank in town. Uh, he was in mining. He was in industrial pursuits. Uh, and uh, she was lovely and petite and um, clever uh, and quite a conversationalist and a bit of a flirt. Uh, and she had she had uh, suitors all over the place. But she kind of focused on McKinley, who was not like her, with being sort of a much more sort of sedate kind of a gentleman. Um, but it was a storybook kind of a romance. Uh, the, the newspaper, which I have to say was owned by her father, so maybe this is an, an exaggeration, but the newspaper said there were a thousand people at their wedding. Huh. Uh, and wow. <laughs> so uh, it looked like a total storybook thing. And then they have a daughter a year into their marriage, um, Katie, little Katie, and then she gets pregnant again a couple years later. Uh, and uh, then things begin to go awry big time. Her mother uh, is diagnosed with cancer, is going to die. They were very close. It was very hard on her. Uh, Her second daughter uh, was maybe affected by the troubled pregnancy, which may be affected by her mother's um, um, cancer or may not have. We don't know. But nevertheless, uh, little Ida Saxton, the second daughter, died within five months of birth. Uh, She went into a swoon of depression that was almost impossible to coax her out of, although McKinley never stopped trying, and he finally did. Uh, And then the second daughter died. Uh, And throughout this period, which was a psychological uh, blow, 
she also developed a physical problem. It seems she had some kind of a carriage accident, maybe fell back. It seemed to be a back injury, maybe a spinal injury, because she was um, really reduced in terms of her mobility. Often, not always, but sometimes confined to a wheelchair, couldn't move around very much. And she became quite sedentary. And on top of all that, I have to sort of go through the whole litany here. She developed epilepsy. Uh, whether it's related to the other things or not, no one knows. But nevertheless, she, all those things sort of descended on her. And she was a totally different person. She was sedentary. She couldn't move around very much. She didn't quite have the same spirit that she'd had in the past. She realized that she was no longer the same person. And she became a little bit um, peevish and a little bit, uh, sometimes it had, could be a little bit difficult. He never, ever stopped being totally devoted to her and loving her and essentially being at her beck and call. Uh, so it's a poignant story, and it, it affected his his um, public persona because people – this was written about, not in great detail. The epilepsy was kept as a deep, dark secret, uh, but generally her invalid nature – uh, and people around the country respected McKinley for his devotion to her. To the very day he was shot. <laughs> yes. Um, just uh, amazing, amazing. Um, ladies and gentlemen, you need to get the book and and read it and enjoy it. There there are so many stories, whether, whether you're into history, which if you're listening to this podcast, you're going to be into it. But <laughs> what, what a great, um, what a great story of, a man, if nothing else, if a man who is devoted to his wife, and I, I love the portion, um, I won't give away the whole thing, but when he's governor and, uh, you know, he crosses the street from their apartment in Columbus and uh, he uh, acknowledges her a couple of times a day and just how, how, my goodness, in this day of texting and convenience of communication, um, he had he had his own little form of communication with his wife and, and her back to him. So I, I enjoyed that that story from the book. So William McKinley is a transformational uh, figure here in our history, especially when it comes to running for office. And we all know he ran against William Jennings Bryan, very outspoken, very out there. He was pounding the pavement and campaigning actively. And I have this impression of William McKinley sitting on his porch and people coming to him. Could we ever have a campaign like that again? <laughs> well, not, not in today's world. And I have to say it's only happened once like that. 750,000 Americans came to his front yard. They basically destroyed his yard, as you can imagine, trampled on his gardens and everything, but he didn't care. Um, um, yes, William Jennings Bryan was a dynamic figure, and he was only 36 years old. He'd had two terms in the House of Representatives. He ran for the Senate and lost from Nebraska. Um, but he grabbed, really, by the nape of the neck, uh, those areas of America that were really struggling as a result of the Panic of 1893, mostly rural areas, farm areas in the West and the South. And those people were, were, were dying financially because they couldn't get liquidity. And they wanted essentially what would be like the Fed today, um, uh, putting more dollars into the economy. They wanted the free coinage of silver. Well, McKinley's party, the Republican Party, was the establishment party. And they didn't want to debase the currency in such a way. And so the result was 
that uh, there was a big issue that emerged. And um, so Brian, uh, who didn't have a lot of capacity to raise a lot of money, he gets on trains and he's crisscrossing. He's showing himself to be utterly tireless. He's crisscrossing the country. He'd have days where his first speech was at 7 o'clock in the morning. His last speech would be at 10 o'clock at night. Um, and McKinley didn't do that. So he crafted this this uh, front porch uh, strategy where he was going to stay there and the Americans would come to him. And they did. It's really incredible. Yeah. I mean, I remember hearing about that even back in high school and just, uh, you know, my, my instructor told us about how he was just this kind of down to earth guy and now finding out some more that it was, yeah, he was down to earth, but it was also very strategic on his part. Uh, is it was really cool to hear. It kind of gives a different perspective on the situation and, and, you know, how elections worked at the time, uh, just to see how, how McKinley acted. Yeah, there's another element to this because, you know, we, we hear often today in terms of politics, politicians always want to control the message. Uh, well, he really controlled the message because these groups, they, these people would come in groups. They would, you know, it might be a um, African-American organization. It might be a church group. It might be an industrial um, uh, group. It could be the Chamber of Commerce from some town somewhere in Nebraska or, or as far away. Who knows? Um, and they would write and say, we'd like to come and can we come on this day? And, and the answer would be yes, if it works. And, and then, uh, the, the uh, campaign people would write back and say, well, what do you plan to say? Well, we plan to say this. And so that's good. So now they know exactly what the people are going to say, or maybe they don't like what they're going to say. So they sort of coax them into changing it a little bit uh, to control the message. Um, and, uh, all the reporters from all over the country were there. So, they would be filing their stories and they McKinley was basically orchestrating this to a large extent from beginning to end. So it was really pretty brilliant from that perspective. Wow. Canton, Ohio center of the universe. For <laughs> <laughs> a bright shining moment. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, Robert, what, uh, what's, what's the next project for you? What are you working on next? Are you going to stay in the same line with the presidents? Uh, that would be our preference, obviously, or are you going to try to branch out a little bit? Well, I mean, if, if I have to do a president to come back and talk to you guys, maybe that's what I'll do. I'll have to see. Yeah, cool. Um, you know, here's the thing. Um, I, I, I set out to resurrect James Polk. I think I did to some extent. And I felt the same way about McKinley. In other words, these were presidents who were not really in the political consciousness of America who deserved to be in the political consciousness. And so um, uh, those were those were great opportunities, I thought, for me. I don't see any other presidents like that. There are a lot more obscure presidents, but I don't see any of them that I particularly want to spend any time with. So if I do another one, it would be somebody who has been significantly written about. And then I would want to come up with a sort of a fresh theme or an idea of what this person represented. And I haven't really found that yet. But I'm, you know, scouring the landscape and, you know, scratching my head and uh, talking to my editor, Alice Mayhew at Simon Schuster. So we'll come up with something. And it may or may not be a president, but it'll probably be somebody who was very instrumental at a turning point period in American history. You talk about how um, McKinley is, you know, obviously the whole point of this book is that he's kind of in the background, but he really should be in the foreground. And he really did a lot more than we realize. What do you think it, it is specifically other than, you know, Teddy Roosevelt that really kind of um, puts him in the background, puts him in the, um, in the shadows uh, that, 
we don't really see as much about him. I mean, especially the fact that he was assassinated uh, should at least bring some attention to him, but we still very rarely hear about him. I think that if he'd served two full terms, he would probably be in the pantheon of American presidents today. But you can't underestimate the significance of Roosevelt, and not just Roosevelt, but the Roosevelt biographers and the the um, uh, sort of adoring um, Roosevelt storytellers. Uh, you know, Roosevelt was just an amazing guy. He was impetuous and clever and funny and amusing and out of control half the time. Um, and um, he just he burst on the scene uh, after he became assistant Navy secretary under uh, McKinley. But then he went down to, you know, created the Rough Riders at the advent of the Spanish-American War and became a hero. Uh, he and George Dewey, the admiral who destroyed the Spanish Pacific Fleet were the two greatest heroes that emerged out of the war. Uh, so when he became president, he was not somebody who ever shared credit with anybody. Even his kids said that he longed to be the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. <laughs> he wanted to be the center of attention. Um, and, and so he crafted this narrative of himself as I'm the man who took the country into the 20th century. Well, he did in many ways. Um, but the fact of the matter is that much of the foundation for everything that he did uh, was laid and constructed by McKinley. Uh, and then what happened was that the, the TR biographers sort of adopted that narrative. And in order to elevate TR to the station that they think he deserved, which I think he only partially deserves, he was a great president and he was a great man in many ways. He may have been the smartest president in terms of pure brain power that we've ever had as president, what he can do with that brain of his in terms of writing histories and, you know, moving it in different directions, all very competent and, and uh, brilliant was quite something. Um, but uh, a lot of what he did was built on the foundation of McKinley and those biographers didn't give him credit. And I think ultimately that became the narrative. And McKinley was viewed as a man who, yes, presided over a lot of consequential events, but they kind of washed over him. He was sort of like a leaf in the wind. And I'm trying to prove through this book that that's not the appropriate way of looking at McKinley and probably not entirely the appropriate way of looking at TR either. Well, fascinating. Fascinating to look back on this period of time because, yeah, the, just the glow of TR <laughs> in relation to anyone who surrounded him, uh, either before him or after, um, pales in comparison. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Robert, very much. It's been a, a really good, a really great pleasure to talk with you and to talk about uh, your new book called President McKinley, Architect of the American Century. And of course, we'll put a link in the show notes to that. But uh, we've really enjoyed having you. And thank you for one, for all of your hard work. And I'm sure the research and writing time that this took. Um, but also, thanks for coming on the show. And um, uh, our listeners are obviously rabid uh, history fans. So we're hoping that some of them will check it out and learn a little bit more about President McKinley. Uh, and um, maybe we'll bring him a little more to the uh, to the forefront. Well, that'd be great. It's been an absolute pleasure being with you, fellas. So I appreciate it very much. Thanks. Appreciate Thank it. you. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.